Howdy, everyone. Before we get into today's show, I want to give a shout out to our sponsors, Our Crowd and Ledger. Genuinely love both these companies. Proud to call them sponsors of the show. You're going to be hearing all about them from me later. But for now, on with the program. Previously, when Bitcoin was trending down at 55K when we were talking last time, I was thinking to myself, there's no one in the world, I think, that thinks $55,000 for a Bitcoin is value. And so if momentum is down, and I don't think that people are buying Bitcoin for value at 55K, why, why be long? Like, why, what's the point of being, what's the point of being long there? All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of On the Margin. We've got a repeat guest, Mr. Avi Fellman here with us again today, back by popular demand. What's going on, Avi? Happy to, happy to be back. Thanks, Michael. Decent, decent amount uh, actually changed since we last talked. I know, man. I know. Well, markets are moving. Uh, they're keeping you very busy. Um, so with that, let's just dive right into our first uh, comment here. So I want to get your thoughts on basically market action over the last uh, two weeks or so. Uh, I think we the last time we connected was the Friday after Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, Bitcoin had gone down from that like 60,000 level, hit 55. People are feeling very bearish, et cetera. Then, you know, like last week, there was that huge nuke all the way down to 42,000. We've uh, recovered somewhat. And I don't even know where we're at right now, like 48. I think Bitcoin is actually in the process of dumping <laughs> as we speak. Um, but it's basically been very shaky kind of pricing levels. And I know that you mentioned uh, last time we talked, uh, you said you had a, a prediction of somewhere between 40 and 45,000, which, you know, me listening, I was like, oh, my God, uh, that sounds that sounds pretty steep. Uh, but it looks like we actually ended up somewhere around there. So talk to me about what you think has been going on for the last two weeks. So I'll say that the recent weakness in the market, I think, has been exacerbated a ton by just general equity weakness. And just people, people generally de-risking uh, into year end. I mean, if you like think about it, right? This year has been a massive banner year for everybody, for people that own equities, for people that own, like own commodities, for people that own crypto. So a lot of people de-risked into into year end, and I think that's that was just what happened. That that's that's why that's why we we sold off in a in a major way. Um, I mentioned this, I mentioned that specific angle last time on the podcast and my caution going into year end, basically because, because of that dynamic at this point, I think a lot of that has been absorbed by the market. A lot of that selling has been absorbed by the market and a lot of that has played out. I mean, Mm. you go look at the chart Bitcoin sold off to 40, 42 K that move from 48 to 42 was a little bit of an air pocket in my opinion. So that wasn't real price discovery. So Bitcoin, in my mind, basically sold off to something like 47, 48K. And that's where we're, where we're sitting, where we're sitting right now. But uh, that was basically driven by the fact that you had a ton of crypto native people that were getting long into large boys de-risking, right? So you had institutions de-risking, you had high net worth individuals de-risking, you had people that held a lot of crypto de-risking. And who was buying it? It was people on derivatives on the other side, like small ticket buyers that were stepping in to actually take the other side of that trade. And then they probably have relatively weak hands. So what happens is they get washed out, like in the, in those, in those cascades, right? They just get, they just get taken out. Um, but from, from my perspective, a lot of that has been, it's, it's played out now. So I think Bitcoin can definitely range between something like a 44 and 50 and, I think that that would actually be a pretty bullish environment for all coins in that in that scenario. But uh, I think at least my thesis from two weeks ago has played out decently. Yeah, um, you had a really good tweet uh, where, you know, when you're looking to allocate to crypto, there are basically two kind of poles that you should be focused on. One is value. The other is momentum. Can you talk a little bit about that framework and how it applies to 
like the price action that we've been seeing the last couple of weeks and just how traders should be thinking about playing this market? Yeah, sure. So I think, so people, when, when people approach Bitcoin, they basically place it in its historical context. And its historical context is that Bitcoin is just a straight momentum driven asset, right? It trades hugely on momentum. It trades in general bubble and blow off format. Uh, it, there's a ton of serial autocorrelation in the markets. I actually wrote uh, an article on Deribit about this. It was pretty, pretty brief, but basically looking at the crypto markets versus all other markets, there's a lot of serial autocorrelation, which basically means if Bitcoin's green one day, it's way more likely to be green the next day than any other asset class, right? There's just momentum associated with it. So the first thing that I think people look at when they're buying Bitcoin is, is the momentum with me or is the momentum against me, right? Mm. So, okay, is Bitcoin in a trend up or is it in a trend down? And if it's in a trend down, I'm probably not going to buy it. If it's in a trend up, I might buy it. So that's the first pillar is momentum. Is That's, that's how people generally tend to approach Bitcoin is, okay, I'm going to try to ride the trends because it's such a heavily trending asset. And the second pillar is value, right? So Bitcoin obviously doesn't go up forever and go down forever. It just, you know, goes up, hits an inflection point and then comes down and then hits an inflection point and then goes back up. Why does it, why does it do that? Where does it tend to stop? It's when people think that it's overvalued or undervalued, right? Mm. And so that second pillar is value. So you got momentum and you got value, two reasons to allocate to BTC. And my perspective on this is that the best way to basically allocate in this market is to think of those two every single time that you're either trading or, you know, buying, buying in this market. Am I buying momentum or am I buying value, right? If you're buying, are you selling, are you selling momentum or are you selling overvaluation, right? And that sounds, that sounds really simple and it is. But the difficulty comes in, okay, well, how do you define value, right? Like, what do you use to actually define value or what do you use to define momentum? I actually think that momentum people intuitively get. So I think humans just intuitively get what momentum is. So there's something in your gut, you can feel it. You can say, oh, this thing is running and it's in a trend. And that's actually a little bit, there, there's a ton of quantitative work that you can put into momentum. That's almost innate, I think. People can, people can figure that out for themselves. The value part is a lot harder from my perspective, right? So when people look at value, you have to consider, okay, how do people assess value? Well, it depends on who they are. Different people assess value in different ways. So the first thing that I always do when I think about the crypto markets is I think, okay, who needs to be buying or selling in order to stop the momentum of Bitcoin and where do they perceive overvaluation and undervaluation? And more recently, over the last, call it, year, the market participant that's directed Bitcoin trajectory has been traditional institutions and high net worth individuals, right? And so what do I think they look at, right, when they think of value? And that's what you have to, that's what you have to dig down. And first, identify who's in the market, who's driving the market. Second, identify what do they look at when they're looking for overvaluation versus undervaluation. And... My conclusion is that a lot of these guys are kind of just treating it as are, are treating Bitcoin as a trade within a broader book and they're rebalancing it based on the Bitcoin moves and they're rebalancing it based on just general historic volatility of BTC. The last eight months 
what seems to be happening is when Bitcoin's down anywhere from 40 to 50%, these guys are starting to see value. And when Bitcoin runs 100%, they start to think that it's overvalued, right? So for example, when we ran up to 40K the first time in February, crashed to 30K, we run up to 60, it doubles there. So a bunch of people thought 30K was value, they bought it. It ran up to 60, they sell. It crashes down to 30, down 50%, they buy it. It runs up to about 68, 69K, they sell it because that's a little bit, you know, 100% around there. So I think that's that's what's happening right now is people are generally viewing 40 to 50% drawdowns as value on like a macro time frame, and then 100% rallies is overvaluation on a relative time frame, right? So that's that. That's my general framing for how I've been thinking about these markets, which is why previously, when Bitcoin was trending down at 55k when we were talking last time, I was thinking to myself, "There's no one in the world I think that thinks $55,000 for a Bitcoin is value." And so, if momentum is down, and I don't think that people are buying Bitcoin for value at 55k, why why be long? Like why, what's the point of being, what's the point of being long there, right? So you're super, super long, right? If I'm a trader. So you, with those two frameworks in mind, I can say, hey, we should be cautious because I don't think that buyers are stepping in at these levels. And I think that there's a decent amount of sell pressure coming from end of year forces. So let's do risk, right? Like maybe be cautious. That's, that's what I was, that's what I was advocating. Now I think, okay, maybe 40 to 45 is that value buy level. For a lot of people, might be a little bit lower, but I think 40 to 45 is a value buy level um, for a lot of these types of market participants. So, okay, start out, start reallocating in those levels, right? That's, uh, that's my general framing around that tweet. When it comes to crypto, security and custody is paramount. Introducing this episode's sponsor, Ledger, your secure gateway to buy, exchange, and grow your crypto assets. I know I've got a smart audience, so I'm assuming slash hoping that most of you already have your Ledger hardware wallet, but just in case you don't, this is how I think about it. I wouldn't get into a car if I couldn't wear a seatbelt, and I don't operate in crypto unless I can do it for my Ledger hardware wallet. Crypto is really exciting, but it is still the Wild West. There are lots of risks, and Ledger is the easiest way to make sure that you are still protected. And the best part about Ledger is that you don't need to make any trade-offs between security of your funds and utility of your assets because Ledger has Ledger Live, which is a software that syncs right up to your Ledger hardware wallet and you can do anything that you'd want to do with your crypto assets. You can easily send and receive, you can buy and exchange, and you can get access to staking. And they've actually started to aggregate some of the best DeFi apps and services out there. Two of my favorites, Paraswap, a decentralized aggregator, and they've got Lido for staking. And Stay tuned. I'm going to keep you guys updated. They've got some really cool services uh, coming out soon. Aave, Compound, and One Inch among them. So if you take one thing away from this, guys, please, please, please make sure that you're protected in this space. Get yourself a Ledger hardware wallet today and start using the Ledger Live app. Click the link at the bottom of this episode. Thank me later. All around the world, tech companies are innovating and driving returns for investors. Our crowd takes a global bird's eye view of private markets and brings the companies with the greatest growth potential to you to invest in. One of my favorite quotes from Jim Bianco is when he says, I hate it when people tell me to invest like Warren Buffett. I wish I could invest like that guy. He sees all the best deals. Well, our crowd is addressing exactly that issue by bringing private companies to you when you can take advantage of them, i.e. when they're still early. 
Our crowd's accredited investors have already invested over $1 billion in growing tech companies, and many have benefited from the 46 uh, IPOs or otherwise sale exits that they've experienced on the platform. Join the fastest growing venture capital investment community at ourcrowd.com slash OTM. Again, that is ourcrowd.com slash OTM. If you take one thing away from this, be it that you should include OTM when you join our crowd. We'll see you soon. Yeah. So, all right, let me, let me ask you this, um, and this will be the last question on Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there was that period of time where we kind of broke past our la- the last all-time high. Uh, we hit like 68 or 69K or something like that. And I remember feeling like as a market participant and talking to a lot of my friends who are deeper into the alt, uh, kind of the alt scene, there's this kind of panic that like Bitcoin was going to do that thing that it does, and it was just going to like run away, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, even if you go back to like late, 2020 when you had that huge rally from whatever it was like 15 basically straight up to you know basically straight up to 60 um i guess what you really had propelling that was this very compelling narrative around fed money printing and i think you know basically the bitcoin community has kind of cemented when there's when people are worried about money printing and loose monetary and loose uh, just monetary and fiscal policy that is bullish for bitcoin and it, and it strikes me that you know, people kind of know that there's like a lot of stuff getting passed, like this this infrastructure bill and stuff like that. But that whole money printer go burr meme has really died down. Yeah. So connecting dots there, do you think that we need another almost like, I don't want to say moral panic because I really do believe it's something to be concerned about, but like a moral panic about what the Fed is doing and super loose monetary policy and money printing and currency debasement. Is that what we need to kind of take us up? Because I feel like that narrative actually did get cemented in the institutional crowd. And maybe that's what we would need to kind of break this pattern of sideways chop. Because if, if basically what's propelling price action for Bitcoin is this like value, uh, you know, value versus momentum framework, I don't really see us moving that much higher or it's a really slow grind from here. I don't know, what do you think? I'll, I'll transform that question a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. I'll, ta- I'll tackle the core and then I just wanna add something onto it, which I think is kind of interesting. So you're right, uh, Bitcoin has been driven mostly by that meme for a very long time, mostly by institutions allocating to Bitcoin because of that for for a very long time. And that meme has died down a lot in part because the Fed is now actually faced with a huge amount of inflation that they're staring down the barrel of. And so to the broader market, they're signaling, hey, don't know if we can continue this loose money regime for that much longer because this is actually really dangerous, right? And six months ago, Nobody was saying that, right? Everybody was saying inflation is transitory. Powell was saying it. The, the The White House was saying it. Nobody was taking it that seriously. Or if they were taking it seriously, they weren't voicing it to the, to the public, right? Mm. And so now I think one of the reasons that Bitcoin has sort of lost momentum is because these people are signaling, hey, we're worried about this now. We're not going to print as much money as we did, and we might actually have to accelerate tapering. And so that sort of that driver for Bitcoin is losing its losing its shine, right? You have all these people that are now, I mean, look, I never, I was never a believer that the only reason that people would allocate to Bitcoin is the sound money inflationary. I mean, I don't think so. I think that it has a huge amount of the tech adoption curve associated with it too. So you can bet on Bitcoin, basically uh, bet on broader adoption of BTC outside of the inflation meme. So that's definitely a part of it. But a lot of the people that bought for the inflation meme, it's like, okay, well, let me step back. Now, the interesting angle to that, though, is that I don't think that interest in crypto has died off. I think that it's just interest in BTC there. So institutions, they started looking at Bitcoin. They started buying 
Bitcoin up. They got comfortable with crypto. Bitcoin was kind of their you know, gateway gateway drug, as a as a term to get to get into crypto. And now they're like, oh well, maybe I should look at Ethereum. Maybe I should look at Solana. Maybe I should look at Avalanche. Maybe I should look at any of these other names, right? Because I bought my first crypto. Why not buy a second? It's happened to all of us. Can can happen to institutions too. And so I actually, what I've found is a lot of people have stopped asking me about Bitcoin and people have started asking me about everything XBTC. They've started asking me about smart contracting. They started asking me about gaming, about NFTs, about the metaverse. And these are people that bought Bitcoin for an inflation hedge. That's why they're in it. That's why they're here. They originally bought into crypto because it was Bitcoin as an inflation hedge is the narrative that caught onto them, right? And I do think that's actually harming Bitcoin a bit because the marginal inflow into crypto now is no longer solely BTC. It's maybe it's ETH, one of these other assets that I've mentioned. And that's definitely hurting Bitcoin in some ways, which actually is hurting the broader market in many ways too, right? Yep. Because Bitcoin, Bitcoin is the flag bearing asset, right? Actually, there's this guy named uh, Jordy uh, Alexander. Dude, I Ryan. I saw this thread. You saw you saw you saw like the uh, I saw the thread. Yeah, it's, it's such a the, good. The, the little matrix that he yeah. has is perfect. Yeah, it's perfect. It's perfect. Uh, so so I guess for people for people that don't know, uh, this guy Jordy wrote a really really great tweet thread about the prisoner's dilemma as it relates to the crypto markets, where <laughs> if everybody buys Bitcoin, then Bitcoin goes up, but if you buy a shitcoin and you you allocate to that, then you can outperform the people that bought Bitcoin. But if too many people end up buying shitcoins and nobody ends up buying BTC, then BTC just collapses and shitcoins go down with it. So it's like this prisoner's dilemma of you're incentivized to defect to buy shitcoin to get better returns than the people that just sold BTC. But if too many people defect from just buying BTC, because of the high correlations in the market, BTC will trend down and then shitcoins will trend down. It's actually pretty, pretty interesting, uh, pretty interesting framing that I think I agree with pretty heavily. Uh, yeah. I don't know if you're seeing my screen here. We'll, we'll show this in the, in the recording, but the, here's the two by two matrix, which he does uh, pump BTC, pump shitcoin, pump BTC, pump shitcoin. And basically what happens uh, when all of those interact. Uh, but this exact here, and it's like a tragedy of the commons uh, type thing, which is what he says. Um, I completely agree, man. I think that's a really interesting way to format that. Um, and, you know, I, I think it would be just from purely from a psychological perspective. I, I have two kind of thoughts on this. And it is funny because I've gotten I've started to get comments in like YouTube and on Twitter like, oh, uh, you don't believe in Bitcoin or don't see the TAM of Bitcoin. I'm just a believer in the narrative. I'm a believer in narratives in general. Uh, I think narratives shape our world is how humans process information. And the narrative that the Bitcoin community has selected for Bitcoin, which I don't even view as being totally accurate, is it's this store value type thing. It's this hedge against inflation. So you can't really get mad when that's how the market interprets things in general. That's how it says what it is, right? Like that's why I've never really fully understood the whole lightning thing. I like actually subscribe to that narrative. I have a certain about Bitcoin that I'm going to hold and never going to sell. It doesn't appeal to me like a new channel for me to more easily spend Bitcoin because I have no interest in, in spending my Bitcoin uh, in general. Uh, but you know, it had to be kind of psychologically devastating. And even me is like a, a large total of Bitcoin. I was like, damn dude, in this last sell-off, Bitcoin is down 13%. And, uh, you know, ETH, which is supposed to be this much riskier asset, right, which has performed much better, this last bull market, is down less than that. It's down like 8%. Solana is down less than that, too. 
You know, I mean, that has to be kind of psychologically tough. Uh, it's a tough pill to swallow. Super. I'll give you I'll give you a little thesis on what I think is happening with ETH right now. Mm. So I think that a lot of people allocated to Bitcoin. So take a step back, sorry. In December of 2020, mm. Bitcoin was right below its all time highs. It's like 18, 19K. It ran up all the way into December and people weren't expecting it at the time to break all time highs before the new year. Because the narrative was in Q1, a bunch of institutions are going to allocate to BTC and that's going to break it into all-time highs. And that's what's going to kick off the rally. What actually ended up happening though, is a lot of fast money. So a lot of fast money, hedge funds, macro funds, traders, high net worth individuals that could move faster than these institutions. They started just buying up all the BTC before those slower moving guys that, you know, they went to their boards and they got everything approved and they said, great, you can start allocating after the holidays on January 1st before they were able to move. The fast money came in and they absolutely rocketed BTC higher. So these guys ended up buying their bags at like 30K, right? I think something similar is happening here, but with ETH this time. So I think that's why you're seeing this really, really radical outperformance from ETH is that a lot of traditional institutions have probably got after a year of holding BTC approval to finally buy Ethereum in Q1 of 2021, not by BTC. You know, they've already, they've already got their BTC allocation. No need to touch that. A lot of people have now got approval for their ETH allocation after a year. So a lot of fast money is repositioning before that Q1 bounce, which is why you're seeing ETH BTC do so well. Working theory. I don't know if it's true, but that's my like high confidence theory as to what's happening in the ETH BTC market. It's fast, fast money repositioning because people know that slow money is about to come in Q1, right? Now, the issue with this obviously is that shitcoiners dilemma. You're not buying, you're not buying Bitcoin. So if Bitcoin goes down, then ETH USD is not going to go up. ETH BTC might go up, ETH USD is not going to go up. So actually ETH BTC, which is actually a pretty easy pair to isolate. It's actually, it's extremely easy to isolate if you trade derivatives. That, that, that I'm super bullish on. When it comes to the USD pairing, I mean, way more speculation, I think. Can you help me understand the amount of focus that gets, I have my own like little theory about this, right? But I see these guys tweet out like ETH BTC is the most slept on chart overall in crypto. You know, if you, if you want to pull up, maybe we can pull up the ETH BTC chart here, but that topped out back in 2017, 2018. But if you look, I'm not a chart guy, you probably are, but there's this like cup and handle kind of pattern here where like, it looks like it really bottomed out and it's been on a steady kind of upward trajectory. Why should people care about that chart? Like, what do you see when you're looking at that? So what I'm, what I'm seeing right now is basically an almost two year uptrend for ETH BTC on the monthly chart, right? I mean, the, the uptrend really started, uh, December, 2019 is where the ETH BTC uptrend started. It just really on a monthly timeframe, it hasn't really gone down versus Bitcoin for two years, right? There've been obviously periods where it's, where it's underperformed BTC, but over the course of two years, it's radically outperformed, uh, Bitcoin. And I think what's happening is that people are finally coming around to the idea over time that the total addressable market for smart contracts is much larger than the total addressable market for sound money. That doesn't mean that sound money is useless and that Bitcoin is useless. I actually don't think that ETH can ever be sound money. I mean, people make this joke about ultrasound money, but the reality is that ETH has changed its monetary policy too often and too frequently to be a source of it's, it's not comforting to be in ETH as a, as a source of sound money 
definitely like as a trade, as a bet on smart contract adoption, as a bet on usage, great. As a bet on, okay, is this an inflation hedge? Are stakeholders able to take over Ethereum? Are, would state governments be able to coerce Ethereum to go do something? It's the, the probability of that is much higher than BTC. Now, the issue is that while extremely valuable, that actually isn't a massive market of, I want to allocate to something that the state cannot coercively change is, is, is a market. It's just not as big as a smart contracting market. Right. Um, so that's, that's, that's my general, that's my general take on it. And right now, uh, you're finally seeing people allocate in a serious way to that because the thesis of Bitcoin, I think has been tested. Right. So yep. prior to 2019, I mean, you hadn't really tested the Bitcoin thesis. Now Bitcoin's a fully, it's fully a macro asset. The inflation hedge thesis is currently in the process of being, of being tested. It's hit, you know, huge amount of adoption. And I think people are finally realizing, hey, we're actually, we might be close to capturing the full market for BTC. Maybe it's 2 trillion, maybe it's 3 trillion. In my mind, personally, I always thought that Bitcoin could get to like one fourth to half of the gold market cap. And so that would be about, you know, three, 4 trillion. We're not that far away. Whereas ETH, the market cap, I think, has a much, much larger right tail along with along with all these other. Are you talking like ever, uh, like just this, you know, within the next period of time, or you think like the total addressable market for Bitcoin is like three to four trillion? Well, it depends on how badly currency gets debased. <laughs> okay, I have. Let me let me respond to some of these because I have thoughts on what you're saying. Good. Um, for you. ETH is ETH is ultrasound money. I don't want to die on this hill. I'm just gonna go ahead and say that. I don't actually feel like it's a particularly useful topic to spend a lot of time talking about. Like, how do you want to define something as money uh, in general? I'm not really sure that's that important. A lot of what's happening in DeFi is making different assets uh, super liquid and tradable against one another. So we might live in a world 10 years from now where everything is so liquid that it has more currency-like aspects. I'm not really sure that's true. I think, you know, we never, like on our last episode, and we're not going to get to any of the other topics that we, that we wanted to talk about either, but we never talked about Sue, uh, the whole yeah. Sue versus Kane thing on the last episode. And like, I didn't love how he kind of came at it, but he did make a point, right? Like ETH had, you know, ETH laid out a roadmap for all the changes that it wanted to make. And it made, it prioritized appreciating ETH in value, the asset over something like speed, right? Or something like that, or usability or onboarding new entrants. And like, I, look, I'm a holder of ETH. I'm a supporter of that in many ways, but like philosophically, they did make a choice. And now what's kind of happening is the other shoe is dropping and you're getting these new, uh, you know, platforms like Solana and Avalanche that are onboarding a whole bunch of users. And like, if you want to use a metaphor that is sometimes helpful for me to understand if you want to view ETH as like the currency, like the settlement layer for the internet or the currency that is going to propel all of these new applications to get built on ETH, the platform, then you could almost view ETH as like a reserve currency there. And then you almost want a weak reserve currency in the same way that the world wants a weak dollar right now, right? That's really helpful for growth and the value of financial assets that are dependent on that currency, right? So I'm actually not 100% sold on this idea of a super deflationary monetary system. I understand that Bitcoin is a helpful reaction to it, – it's gone way too far what central banks are doing right now. Bitcoin is the overcorrection that we needed there. But I think what this whole community has taken away is that inflationary equals bad, deflationary equals good. And I think that's just 
I don't think that's correct. I just don't think that's a, new, a nuanced enough understanding of monetary policy um, and how economies grow and are supposed to work. So, you know, with the whole ETH sound money thing, I'm like, I, I don't know. I think time will tell. But like, yeah, I, I could actually see you wanting a weaker reserve currency there. Do you know what I mean? I don't know. Is that heresy to say on a podcast like this? I, I can. So there, I think there are a couple of different statements in there, some of which I agree with, some of which I don't. I think that it's 100% true. ETH went down the wrong path, in my mind, of trying to compete with Bitcoin as opposed to trying to be the best smart contracting platform. Because in my mind, it's never going to compete with BTC in terms of being yeah. sound money. It just can't and it won't and it shouldn't even try. And so the whole EIP 1559, the fact that they spent so much effort, the ETH community, championing that as opposed to you know, educating the, the world on ETH 2.0 and focusing on, actually, I, I don't want to say focusing all the dev effort because I actually don't think that it was like a massive undertaking relative right. to ETH 2.0 undertaking. I mean, people are obviously spending more time there, but in terms of the narrative, for sure, it sh they shouldn't have spent that much time on being ultrasound money. It was a mistake. And other smart contracting platforms are coming out and it's showing ETH that it's real, it's real moat. It's was always being the one smart contracting platform that was the best one to build on. And if that goes away, then ETH is in big, big trouble. And so I actually, everything that I said was predicated on the fact that people are finally allocating to smart contracting platforms. And so they're choosing ETH, which is the current leader. But if ETH doesn't effectively ship ETH 2.0, then they're going to be in really big trouble. And I, I, I would, I would, if ETH 2.0 is not shipped, like, like say we fast forward five years and ETH 2.0 isn't shipped, ETH is probably like out of the top 10 at that point because of the, like the inability to scale. I don't, I don't think it's going to compete on the sound money, sound money scale. Uh, th the flip side though is I do think that you can combine sound money with a smart contracting platform because the concept of a weak currency in my mind I mean, it's it's about exports, right? You want it, you want a weak currency so that you can you can export your goods and that people that people are willing to buy it so that you can produce at a high level and that people can consume that. And that's not really the, the case with a smart contracting platform. There are no goods to produce that cost more when the currency is higher, right? Because you can you can scale down the fees. I think the issue is the issue always just comes back to scalability, right? And if price is tied to the cost of using the network, then yes, that's bad, but it shouldn't, it shouldn't be right. And on, on, on all, on all networks that are built the correct way, or that should be built, the that will be built the correct way, that relationship breaks, right? The, the higher up the price, that doesn't necessarily mean gas fees are going to be going to be higher. But currently on ETH, that's, that's how it's been working, but that doesn't, that doesn't have to be true when it moves to proof of stake. Right. Hmm. So that, that, that's, that's actually really, that's my general take. That's really interesting, but I also, I will I'll push back on your pushback and say, I think what actually might end up, what you might end up in a world with is, um, you know, the bankless guys do talk about this. And I really like this idea of ETH being like a chain of chains or whatever. And I do think like, if you think about what the product overall of smart contract platforms is, is block size uh, eventually. And like, I, I do believe that there is something to like, ETH has taken the way of decentralization, right? Like that's at the core of what they're doing as an ethos. That's what all their developers are concerned about, whatever. I do think the premium that will be ascribed to that block size as like a state preservation machine and settlement assurances in this new world will be very, there'll be a huge premium that's attached to that. And I, frankly, I don't see a lot of other chains that are trying to compete with that in general. So you could actually think about that 
it's a it's a weird esoteric thing to think about and i don't even have enough concrete things in my head but you could view that as the export of these smart contract platforms in the world because what you'll probably end up with to use a super rough analogy is different nations I, so I, I, I agree with you what i'm saying is that the cost of that export doesn't scale linearly with price in the same way that it does with a country right mm -hmm. so with the if the what if the dollar appreciates versus other other currencies then the cost of buying from the us increases linearly with that price change what i'm saying is that's not necessarily true with smart contracts right it doesn't oh, interesting. Have, it is true currently but it doesn't have to be true right and it actually isn't technically true it just happens to be like how it's worked right it just yeah. it just happens to have happened as ethereum went up in price there's nothing actually like technical about that as far as i understand it it doesn't have to be true right got it yeah you're right um i know we're running out of time here so i actually just want to end on where you see things going let's say over the next six months or something to a year i think there's actually a decent possibility a lot of market participants have been uh you know baking in the expectations right? we talked about cycles the last time we chatted and there's this idea that there's going to be some kind of blow off top because that's always happened in the past honestly to me it's looking less and less likely by the day that we end up seeing something like that and maybe what we get for the next year is basically just another uh you know sideways chop for the next year right which would make pretty much everyone super upset which is what markets love to do so i don't know what are your thoughts i guess for the next like six 12 months like where do you see the market heading so i see the market i see alternative smart contracting platforms do very well i see a res I, I see a resurgence in dApps coming pretty soon i think people have slept on slept on dApps for too long i mean look at DeFi. it's been in a it's been in a year-long bear trend versus ETH. I think that I think that dynamic is due for a flip in like the next three to six months. So I'm I'm keeping my eye out for that and actively looking for places to allocate outside. I mean, I'm almost done allocating L1s in my mind because they're they're so highly valued. It's like okay, well, show me the DApps. Show me show me what's actually being built now. That's that's mm -hmm. where my focus is going on BTC. So think about it. A super cycle would look very much like. BTC ranging between 30K and 60K for a year, two years, three years. I'm going to take take a stab and say that I think that Bitcoin's pretty close to fair value here. So <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised to see Bitcoin range for the next two years between 30K and 80K and basically have Bitcoin dominance crater. That would be, that's almost my expectation for the next two years at this point is to have BTC range aggressively but have BTCD crater. And so if you look at it, it's kind of already happening, right? Yep. Last, I mean, Bitcoin at 60K in May, Bitcoin 48K now, Luna's basically 4X since then, Solana's 10X since then, Avalanche's 3X since then, right? Bitcoin's down, but what's what's going on? ETH is, ETH is at all time highs relative to where it was in May. I mean, it was at 4,200, now it's 4,200 again. So that's, I think, what's already happening. I just don't necessarily think people have internalized it yet. And once they internalize it, it's going to become obvious. And then once it becomes extremely obvious, which maybe happens in like six to 12 months, then we probably get a Bitcoin run. That's my, that, that's, that's my play. The one thing, the one thing that completely messes all this up, let's say in February, a Bitcoin spot ETF gets approved. That would mess up the whole thing. Because people would, I think, pile back into the Bitcoin for at least uh, you know a month or two. You could get a BTCD run, um, but bar that, I think I'm pretty convicted in that thesis. I like it, man. Other people are going to hate it, but I like it. <laughs> um, all right, man. Uh, this has been a ton of fun. I know you got to run. 
we'll do this again soon. Yeah, we'll do it again soon. Thank you for having me on, Michael. Of course. Cheers, buddy. Bye.